Thank you so much, as always. Guys, before we, we sort of step into the message, you can sit down. You, you guys can sit down. Can we just give a big round of applause to our worship team and our worship pastor, Andy Rozier? And these guys, they do an awesome job every week of just sort of helping us prepare for what God is going to do in our midst today. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life East. Our lead pastor, Andrew Arndt, is thankfully getting a little bit of time to rest, spending some time with his family away, relaxing. So unfortunately, you're stuck with me today. For Oh, some of you would say fortunately. That's very sweet. That's very kind. I don't believe you, but that's very kind. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. If you are sort of new around here, um, what we've been doing for the last, really now I think 10 weeks, maybe less than that, a good chunk of time, is we've been walking through this series of conversation that's asking the question, who is God? So we spent a large chunk of time talking about who is God as, as it's revealed to us in the scriptures as a father. And now we've stepped in, we're asking as we're heading up to Easter, who is God as we think about him through the scriptures revealed to us as the son. And Pastor Andrew kicked us off last week in this conversation, and he sort of wrapped up his message looking at this moment in the life of Jesus where this voice from heaven speaks over, and sa- over him and says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And then there's this final phrase at the end, and it just says, listen to him. And for many of you, when you think about listening to the voice of God, it can create sort of a bit of an uncomfortability because what that means is that God may actually have something very specific to say to each and every one of us. That Jesus is not speaking sort of in sheer generalities, but he's speaking in specifics to us. And with that in mind, what I want to look at today is the way, sort of the lens that we see Jesus, the son in the scriptures, is that of a prophet. Now that word prophet might feel a little unfamiliar for some of you. It might be a little strange to even use it. Maybe when you think of a prophet, you think of someone who shows up to a church and there's like four or five offerings that go around. They ask for a lot of money because they've got something really really good to say. I think a really simple way to think about what a prophet is, is it's a man or a woman who is so close to the heart of God that as they look out into the world and they see the wrongs, the things that would break the heart of God, they can't help but stand up and say something. They can't help but speak out about it. In fact, a man by the name of Abraham Joshua Heschel, he defines a prophet like this. He says, the prophet is a man, read man or woman, who feels fiercely. God has thrust a burden upon his soul and he is bowed and stunned at man's fierce greed. Frightful is the agony of man. No human voice can convey its full terror. Prophecy is the voice that God has lent to the silent agony, a voice to the plundered poor, to the profaned riches of this world. It is a form of living, a crossing point of God and man. God is raging in the prophet's words. God is raging. What it means is that the prophet is the one who looks out into the world and sees the problems and begins to speak on behalf of the Lord. And what I would imagine is as we talk about Jesus as a prophet, that makes some of us comforted, but it makes a large portion of us fairly unsettled because we wonder what he might have to say to us. With that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers. In the Gospel of John, Jesus in this moment actually has a whip to which we would say, calm down. Verse 13, it is written, he said to them, 
My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. To which Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. With these words in mind, let's pray and invite the Spirit into our midst this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that we we need you. We need you to speak into our lives. So God, we invite you to do that right now. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you help reveal to us the places of our lives that you, Lord, have something to say? We ask all this knowing that you will meet us here in faith. Would you meet us? It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. In order to truly understand what's happening in this moment, because if you drew up around church, you've heard this story a couple times. You've even seen like the pictures or someone when you were even little, they used like a flannel graph to display Jesus coming into the temple and throwing a fit. So in many ways, this can be sort of an overly familiarized story to us. But to understand what's really going on, we actually have to look at the prophet's of old, right? These men, these people who stood at the the forefront of what God was trying to speak into people's lives to sort of get a picture of what's happening. You can flip your Bible real quick. You don't have to, to Isaiah 56. Isaiah, he paints a picture of what will happen when the Lord begins to draw in all people to himself. And Isaiah makes a distinction. It starts with Israel, but it begins to expand out to the very ends of the world, that he begins to draw them to him save them from their sin, and salvation becomes a reality for all of them. And the way that Isaiah paints this picture is that the salvation would occur as people begin to draw in to God's temple. Isaiah 56, verse 7, he says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of what? Prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer. For all nations. See, in Isaiah's vision of what the temple would become, his prophetic declaration is that the temple becomes more than just a a place where God dwells, although that is true. It becomes a place where all people can now dwell and have never ending communion with God, conversational relationship. His house will be called a house of prayer. Or I think of the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to run through a couple prophets today. Jeremiah, he was called by God to stand at the entrance of the temple and speak harsh truth over people's lives. You know the funny thing about a prophet? No one likes prophets because they always have something to say. Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Where's Jeremiah standing? In front of the temple. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own, what? Harm. 
then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. So in the vision of Jeremiah, as he's declaring this over the people standing in front of the temple, he says to them, this place will one day be your home. You will live never-ending connected to God. But there is a problem. There are things in your life that simply don't belong. He says in order for this temple to become a place where they can dwell with the creator of all things, they need to reframe their lives. He says there are beliefs that you have about the world, about other gods that are actually keeping you from this. There are behaviors, the way you're treating one another, the way you're treating yourself and your family that is actually keeping you from this experience. In other words, something must change in the hearts and the lives of these people if they want to be close and dwell with God. One last prophet. The prophet of Malachi, we don't read Malachi a whole lot. He's just a small book. But the prophet of Malachi sees in in the people of God that they have made a mistake. They have forgotten just how much the God who saved them and liberated them, who has rescued them time and time again, they have forgotten how much this God has loved them. In fact, there's a moment at the very beginning of Malachi where he says that the voice of the people are crying out, God, how have you really loved us? They've forgotten who they are. But what Malachi does is he doesn't call out issues against just God's people. He begins to call out the issues in the priests who facilitate the sacrifices within the temple. He says this, Malachi chapter 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his what? Temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, these are the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Notice who is purified here, the leaders, the religious, the, the upright, the righteous of the day. This is who Malachi is calling out this prophecy against. He says, one day the messenger of the Lord will arrive and he will begin to strip away all the impurities and imperfections of God's people. Here's why I tell you all this. Jesus shows up to the temple and these ideas about what the prophets have spoken exist in their conscience. They know that one day a messenger will arise and begin to refine them, begin to draw them into the temple that is not meant to be anything but a house of prayer for all people to gather and be in never-ending communion with God. And yet Jesus shows up, and what does he find? He finds people selling the temple has become a place for money changers. What, what does that mean? It means that there was a temple tax for people to come and make their sacrifices. But if you came from a different place, if you came from a country or, or a land that had a different even sort of face on your coin, if you put a, the graven image of a god on your coin, it was no longer accepted. So what did they offer? Well, they conveniently offered a way for you to exchange that before you made a sacrifice. But what was happening? They were driving up the rate at which this currency could be exchanged. There was injustice 
occurring at the front of the temple. Jesus, he sees these money changers, and then he turns and he looks and he sees these people selling doves. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that there was a law that existed that meant if you wanted to come and make sacrifices to the Lord, you had to bring with you a lamb. And you would sacrifice the lamb, and it would, it would cover your sins and your transgressions before the Lord. But they made sort of a caveat in the law that if you were too poor to afford a lamb, I don't even know what the going rate of a lamb is. If you were too poor to afford it, you could purchase and bring two doves with you and make the sacrifice there instead. In other words, this was a caveat made for the poor. So what does Jesus walk in and finds? He finds them selling doves, keeping those who are poor and broken and marginalized even further away from God, driving up how much it costs to get a dove. And what you know to be true about the Israelites is if you could not afford to make your atonement, if you could not afford that sacrifice, well, then you had to be cast off somewhere. He sees these money changers in the temple. He sees these people selling doves. And then he sees people just selling goods of all sorts, which if you're like me, when I read this passage, I went, well, don't we sell like books in church sometimes? And like coffee? Now, New Life East, we're so holy, we give you coffee. But Places, the churches, they sell books, they sell coffee, they sell all sorts, they sell t-shirts, they sell all sorts of stuff. Is there really any difference between what we do and what was happening there? And the reality is that what's happening in this moment when Jesus walks into the temple is not only that it's been turned into like a strip mall, but everything that they are selling is meant to perpetuate injustice among the people. It is meant to keep people as far away from God as possible. Now, I don't think they were doing this on purpose, but greed is a powerful thing. Power is a powerful thing. So these people have begun to keep people as far away from God as they can. So what does Jesus show up and see? Not a nice bookstore with resources for Christians. He shows up and sees all of these hurdles that people have to get over to draw closer to the Father. So what does Jesus do? Loses his mind. Now, it's true, right? We've used this passage all the time to sort of defend the idea that it's okay for Christians to get angry, right? We do. We use this all the time. I've probably used it multiple times. Well, Jesus flipped tables. Yeah, but you're flipping people off on the highway. That's not, that's not the same thing at all. See, what Jesus, what is true about Jesus is he will always rage against the people and the structures that keep people as far away from God as possible. Jesus was righteous in his anger. He saw a reason for it. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't beat up the money changers. He doesn't punch the sellers of doves. He might have wanted to, but he's better than me. So he doesn't do that. He simply drives them out. He clears out the place. He looks at everything that is going on, and he recognizes that there's something wrong. I would say it this way. What Jesus does is he turns the tables of all the beliefs and the behaviors that do not belong in the temple of God. This is all he's doing. He's recognizing that there are beliefs and their behaviors that are existing in this holy space where God is present, and he says these things simply do not belong. Jesus will always be against the things that keep people far 
from God. And what he always has a tendency to do is show up and start removing those things. So I know what many of you are asking this morning. What does any of this have to do with us today? Like this is great information about the temple and how it worked and what Jesus does. But what does this have to do with us today? Watch this. This is going to be really fun. After Jesus dies, which many people believe that this moment, Jesus sort of flipping the tables in the temple becomes the moment where Jesus is almost guaranteed he is going to get murdered. He has made every person that you shouldn't make mad, mad. What we know about the story of Jesus is he would be betrayed, he would be turned over, he would be hung on a cross. Three days later, he would raise again from the dead. This is the truth of the gospel. And the church doesn't die, it expands. So much so that a man by the name of Paul begins to help plant churches, these communities of faith, all throughout the world. And one day he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, the Corinthian church. And he would pen these words that were not normal the way that we hear them in church now. This would be a complete change in philosophy. He says this, do you not know that your bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You, as a follower of Jesus have now become a temple, the place where the presence of God dwells. This is what you've become. So a worthwhile question to ask, has Jesus ever stopped being a prophet? No. Which means what Jesus still does to this day is step into the temple of our lives and begin to flip over and remove the things that do not belong. Here's the simple truth. Jesus will always call out the things in our lives that simply do not belong. The temple is no longer a physical place. You have now carried the presence of God with you. So Jesus has every right to look into the depths of your heart and your soul and identify the places that simply do not belong. This is what Jesus is still doing today. And if you're like me, that is not the best feeling. I remember when I was 16, I became a Christian because I was just infatuated with Jesus. I thought Jesus was fascinating. And I became a Christian, but what you find out when you become a Christian is that Jesus sort of never stops poking at things in your life. He never leaves stuff alone. I remember becoming a Christian at 16, and I, my life was a mess. And I remember Jesus being like, hey, so the, like, drugs and the partying, we going to talk about that? No. What about, like, your interactions with, like, your girlfriend or girlfriends or whatever you were doing at 16? We going to talk about that? No. What about the way you behave on a basketball court, Rory? How about that? Are you just going to be a jerk the rest of your life? Yes. And then it starts to get a little more broad in general as you follow Jesus longer, where he just starts to be like, hey, can you be a little more gentle, a little more kind, a little more patient? And before long, I found myself looking at Jesus all the time being like, would you just leave me alone? Like, thank you for securing my salvation and my eternity and my destiny and all that, but can you like just back off. 
Because what can so quickly happen is it feels like when Jesus starts to show up in the temple of our souls and starts flipping stuff over, everything he's flipping over is all the stuff that we enjoy. Hey, drink with moderation. Well, that's no fun. This is what begins to happen. I think of the quote that C.S. Lewis, he writes, he says there's a story about a young schoolboy who was once asked what he thought God was like. And he replied that as far as he could make out, God was the kind of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is having fun and then making them stop. <laughs> this is what it can start to feel like when Jesus begins to show up in the temple of our lives and going, what's going on there? And he just flips a table over. He looks at it and he says, this simply does not belong. And maybe some of us in this room have actually experience the pain of what happens when Jesus shows up and flips the table. Because it's not always a fun experience. In fact, for many of us, it feels just purely painful. Something that we've loved or enjoyed or really cared about or we thought was valuable is all of a sudden now just all over the floor. Jesus is saying there's something more. Because the truth is, Jesus doesn't show up and start flipping tables because he's interested in causing you pain. In fact, I never noticed this until I looked at this passage over these last couple of weeks. Look at what immediately happens after Jesus clears the temple. Verse 14, it says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he what? He healed them. This is what immediately happens after the temple has been cleared. Jesus has turned into a rage machine. And just moments later, he's healing people. He's rid the temple of all the things that no longer belong there, and he's now invited people in to be healed and made whole. This is the truth. Jesus, when he begins to flip over the tables in our lives, he doesn't do it to hurt us. I would just say it this way. Jesus flips over the tables in our lives to heal us, not harm us, not wound us. Jesus isn't interested in taking things away so that you hurt. He's interested in taking things away so that you become the whole version that he has always created you to be. I wonder if Jesus were to metaphorically walk into the temple of our souls today, what might he see? What beliefs and behaviors might he begin to call out. I wonder if for some of us, he might look deep into us and recognize that even though we're Christians and we give, deep inside of us, there's a love of money just hanging out. And I imagine if he saw that, he would topple the table. Why? Not because Jesus wants you to be broke. Not because Jesus wants you to be poor. Not because Jesus needs more of your money. Jesus isn't broke. But he's actually interested in you finding out what healing of the trust issue you have would look like. He's not interested in you being poor. He's interested in you healing the trust issue that's in your life. I even think about many of us who walk around and, and as a pastor, the more you talk to people, you sort of start to see it, that, that our world has a massive identity issue. So many of us walk around asking the question all day long, who am I really? Who am I really? Who am I really? And I wonder if Jesus would show up and topple that table as well, not because he's interested in us becoming nobodies, but because he's interested in all of us becoming the somebodies that he has created us to be. Not the people that we've sort of conformed our image into, made ourselves into the likeness of whoever, 
But he looks at us and he says, this, doesn't, this simply doesn't belong. Why? Because I want you to be mine. I wonder, I'm going to step on some toes. If you have an email you'd like to write this week, send it to Andrew. I wonder... I wonder if Jesus would step into the temple of our lives and look at the table we have set up for politics and immediately knock it over. Why? Not because he's, he thinks that Christians should be apathetic. Not because Christians shouldn't care. In fact, Christians should deeply care about what goes on in the world of politics. But I wonder if he would topple it because he would look at that table and go, that is an idol. We have now become so infatuated with politics. Many of us, this is now a true sociological thing. We believe that politics are the only way that we can be saved, which is sheer propaganda. If Jesus is the only way in which we are saved, then politics can't also do it. He's not interested in us being apathetic. He's interested in us giving our trust to the only one who could save us. This is what happens when the prophet Jesus continues to reign in our lives. He's not interested in hurting you. The best prophets eventually turn into physicians. They're interested in healing you. This is what Jesus does. It took quite a bit of personal experience to understand that. You know, before my wife, Brooke and I, we moved here, we, um, we believed through conversation, through the calling of God, that we were going to plant a church in 2021. It's now 2022, so you can see how that worked out. But we thought that was what was going to happen. We were going to plant a church. Part of when you get ready to plant a church, you go through these assessments with different church planting organizations, and they deeply evaluate you. They're trying to figure out, are you crazy? Are you going to steal money? Are, are you, is your marriage in good shape? What's going on there? And we passed all of our assessments with green lights and got A's. It's the first A I've ever gotten in my life. And they were like, man, we believe God has called you to this. We believe that you are gifted for it. We believe that your family is set up for it. And then we had this phone call that came from one of our assessors a few weeks later. His name was Nick. And Nick said, hey, just checking in on you guys, man, really excited for you. I just have one piece of feedback I want to give you that... Um, we're not going to put on any documentation, but I, I want you to hear it. I said, okay, man, I'm, I'm here for it. He said, I don't know when you're going to plant, where you're going to plant, how it's going to work. It's going to happen. But you need to leave the church that you currently work at. He said, you need to leave. It's time for your family to step out and leave. And my wife and I sort of turned and looked at each other as we heard this. Because what was unfortunate was it was a true statement that we knew was true, but it wasn't one that we wanted to admit. It was as if God had stepped into the temple of our lives and like looked at us and then looked at the table, looked at us, looked at the table and just tipped it over. So this moment of pain arises where we realize this place we've known, we've loved, we've served is now coming to an end. We walked through all sorts of different things in that moment. <laughs> could, we, could we trust God with our finances and our family's security? We just started building more tables. Could we trust God with the security of my career, just leaving a place and trying to figure out something new? What began to even happen more was I began to ask those identity questions of, God, do I, I, I don't even know how to be a pastor if you're just going to pull me out of this place. I, 
I realized that there was a table set up of pride and independence and I really wanted to trust God, but I didn't really trust God. And so what does God begin to do in the only way that the prophet Jesus can do? He begins to flip over every single table until we felt like we were left with nothing. It was either trust him or not. And what we found, New Life East, so I say thank you to you. What we found over these last seven months of being here at New Life, being in Colorado Springs, is that God was not removing any of those things from our lives to hurt us. He was simply doing it to heal us. The days that we were able to stand in here and worship without baggage or worry, the days that even we stood in here and were unable to worship because everything was so new and, and it was fragile and I'm thankful for people like Andy Rozier and Andrew Cantrell and Jillian who led us in worship, who sang the songs that we couldn't sing. Jesus is never interested in turning over the tables of your lives to hurt you, but simply to heal you. So New Life East, let me ask you this question. Where are the places in your life that Jesus is attempting to turn over right now? Where are the things that Jesus is walking into the temple of your life and he's recognizing beliefs and behaviors that don't draw you closer to God, but in fact are pulling you further and further away? For many of you, it doesn't take long to identify it. It's actually haunted you. It's followed you into this space this morning. For others, it might take more work. But there's only one thing that we can do when we identify it. Let's confess it and surrender it. So New Life East, would you stand this morning? as we pray the prayer of confession today together. Say this with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. New Life East, let's continue to worship this morning. Then Pastor Colin is going to lead us to the table. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold. And precious silver purify my heart. Let me be as gold, pure gold, refined as Set apart for you, Lord. 
purify my heart. Purify my heart. Cleanse me from within. And be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. So do it now. We give you praise and thanks, Jesus. Would you lift up your voice to say what you are thankful for today. God, that you have saved us. That you care enough about the purity in our hearts to flip the tables. So we come to the table. The table is open to all who called upon the name of the Lord and have made him Lord of their lives. And the elements are by the table, of, by the door if you need to get some. But would you receive this today as God's gesture of love to you, that he loved you enough to send his son to the cross so that he could have a relationship with you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given a thanks just like we have done, he broke the bread, would you break it in your hands, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, would you receive it? In the same night, after supper, he took the cup saying that this is the new covenant in my blood. This represents the new relationship I have with you. No longer do you come to me through sacrifices, through buying swallows and doves in the temple. Now you come to me through relationship with me by receiving my gift for you. This is God's gift for you. Would you receive it with thankfulness?
Thank you, Jesus. And now we respond with worship. Would you lift up your voice as we sing the doxology? From whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. New Life East, would you simply open up your hands to receive this benediction today? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son, all God's people said, amen. Hey, if you are a guest with us, we'd love to meet you in Connect Central. But if you're looking to find out more about who we are as a church, we want to invite you to meet New Life East. Pastor Colin's going to lead that in room 201. We want to invite our altar ministry team to come forward as well. If you have any need or, or just want someone to pray with you, we would love to be a part of that. New Life East, would you go in peace?